I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversation, diverse connection, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone, here we go. This is an incredible episode. The conversation I have today is with Chelsea Levy. And wait till you hear the dialogue between the two of us. It is rich, it is necessary, it is powerful, and it is all about biases against people in larger bodies. And it is a must hear. All righty. Let's jump right in. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. We are in for quite a discussion today. My guest is Chelsea Levy. Chelsea, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Hi, Karen. I'm I'm so thrilled to have you on the show today. Uh, you and I were having already this rich dialogue before we even started the recording. So can you tell listeners a little bit about who you are and the work that you do? And we'll start there. Yeah, absolutely. In a capture snapshot, I am a career changer. So I am, first of all, my pronouns are she, her, hers. I am uh, a woman in New York City. and I, yeah, I'm a career changer into dietetics. I'm a fat dietitian to be and certified intuitive eating counselor that focuses on eating disorder recovery and disordered eating uh, with a focus on, you know, weight stigma being unpacked um, as an advocate for all of my clients in private practice. And there is a lot to unpack there. And so I am just wondering, should we just jump right into the topic of, you know, one of the things we talked about before a few minutes ago is talking about what it means to have body liberation. And what is what is your explanation of that so listeners can understand? Yeah, I think for what is called straight-sized folks who are not what we think of as plus wearing plus size clothing, um, they might not have like the bandwidth to experience this in their in their life. But the lived experience of a fat person every day is limited in that liberation, in that body liberation, because of the systemic weight stigma that is uh, pervasive. Really, I mean, from the doctor's office, which is of course a big focus of mine as a healthcare clinician. But in the day-to-day of um, fitting in seats and chairs in restaurants, in airplanes, buses, cars, uh, you know, like beds, waiting room chairs, it's just, it, it is endless. 
Um, so, so to answer your question, like, what is that liberation? That liberation is the freedom to have access to things, um, to be able to move around in your body and be thought of and included in society. That is, that that's, would be a liberated state. Let's talk about when you said in the medical community, because my understanding is that doctors are allowed to set a weight limit of the clients that they will and will not see. Is that accurate? That is accurate. And it is really I think differing state to state and have the statistics in front of me, but doctors do have the right to decline offering that care and, you know, in a private practice capacity. And a lot of them do, and they do it in really kind of sneaky ways by blaming it on your body size that you need to go deal with your body first before they can treat you, which is just really lacking evidence. And when they say that, I'm assuming the underlying message is you need to go lose weight. That's- you need to go, yes. Thank you for articulating that. Saying your body is the problem here in the room. When you go take care of that, then we can actually work on the problem that you came here for. Um, maybe it wouldn't be a problem if you were smaller, which just really isn't, tr- it's lazy medicine. It's not actually treating what is um, happening. You might, as a fat person, go into the doctor's office for ear infection and be told, you know, maybe that you need to have bariatric surgery and be referred out and not really be cared for. I mean, these are the day-to-day things that I hear from my clients going to the doctor's office for basic needs. Can we talk about the, the, I'm going to use the word dangers, of bariatric surgery? And I did not expect to go there, but the fact that you said it, and I know for myself that I, like many, hold doctors in high esteem. They, I go to them for the knowledge they have that I don't. So when they say something, I listen to it. So what happens when somebody walks in for an ear infection, they're told to go for bariatric surgery or because like, do people know the, the negative consequences and side effects of doing such horrific procedures to their bodies and are doctors telling them that or are they just saying you know what you should do go get bariatric surgery and then we'll talk yeah that's a great question i think that in that immediate dynamic no the answer is this is life-saving surgery and i can't help you until you help yourself because your body is the problem in the room which is not accurate um that all to say i i mean i i'm personally not a proponent of bariatric surgery, but I certainly hold respect for people who choose to take the risks involved um, as just a side note. But in, in terms of moving forward with a bariatric surgeon, they do have the process of letting you know the risks, but but they're in a capacity of making money, right? So it, there's so much bias. And uh, you know, a person who is going for this medical care doesn't have that education to really make the decisions. They're really basing it off of the experts who are fat phobic and coming from a weight centric modality. 
it's it's really uh, it's it's really unbelievable the the power that the medical community has, especially given the fact that there is so much fat phobia in the medical community. That's that's frightening, Chelsea. It's I, I, frightening doesn't even actually come close to describing it, but for some reason, it's just the word that's coming to my mind. You look like you were going to say something. Oh, so many things. I mean, just this morning, and this is just sort of a tangent, but it's related. Um, so I'm a fat person in dietetics and there's very few of us out there publicly in social media and in IFED. I don't know if you're on that server. It's the International Federation of Eating Disorder Dietitians. So you, you may have heard of it. So in the group, we refer to each other for resources and such. And somebody was looking for resources for their client of um, fat dietitians um, that, that, that their client can follow because they just don't know any. And I think somebody listed one, per, like Kimmy saying one person who you may have heard of in the field who's incredible and a dear friend and colleague to me. Um, and so I responded before we came on here and listed like six people, uh, including myself. And I thought to myself, there's got to be more out there that are just not outwardly public on social media. But even so, I mean, I can't even count on my hands the amount of clinicians in dietetics that are fat. Um, and that just says so much about our like medical weight centric model being so fat phobic that we can't see body diversity in a, in a space for helping people heal nutritionally. I mean, it just, it, it's wild. I also want to point out and forgive me for interrupting, but no. for you to say there's six out of the whole field mm -hmm. that you can like count that you can think of mm -hmm. is also frightening. I I'm, I'm, I'm imagining myself at conferences where there's thousands of people that work in eating disorders. And you're saying in a room like that, we could pick out six. Again, there's probably more out there that are not on social media because they were looking for like people who are publicly out there having conversations and putting their body in the room. So there's that, but there definitely is a minority and it's not because that people don't exist because body diversity has always existed since the beginning of humans being in existence. But um, there's a reason why people in larger bodies don't go into dietetics. It's against the grain. Your body is literally told it's a problem in your education. It's, it's, um, it's painful. What was it like? Because I know that when you were doing, and you may have just said it, it was painful when you were doing your degree that you were one of the very few, and, and please always correct me if I'm saying something incorrectly, that was actually like a health at every size practitioner, like looking at, at things from, what the hell is that like, Chelsea? Are you kidding me? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for pointing that out. It's, um, let me give you an example. So in my graduate program, there were 27 of us. And of the 27 of us, there was one other person and myself who are doing health at every size, weight inclusive new nutrition care right now. Um, I have a few close friends that were my library buddies who I've helped sort of understand the principles of health at every size and sort of the harms of weight cycling. Um, none of them are really interested in promoting weight loss, but are not necessarily like putting their you know, foot forward in this work initially as they're emerging into the, into the career. So you have that dynamic and then you have these programs, like I think it's NYU and many others have 
bariatric like tracks where clinicians become dietitians who specifically are trained to specialize in bariatric surgery. And it's, it's a higher paying job in the end. And so, so many young students go into the field thinking, oh, I'm helping people. I'm helping people and it's a good living. And like, this makes sense. It's like, I'm going into healthcare. I'm, I'm learning about biology. I'm learning about how to heal somebody. Um, it's, it's wild to see that dichotomy. It also must've been quite lonely for you. If, if you were, you know, I remember when I was in graduate school, one of the things that I loved is that we were a a group that was all going towards the same goal with the same values, with the same, you know, granted we all worked through different modalities, but at the end of the day, we were still all moving in the same direction. And that was an important part of my graduate work, that community. And so Mm -hmm. it must've felt lonely and and infuriating. I I don't mean to put words in your mouth. No, I really, I mean, I, you know, I think the reason that I was able to get through it is because I'm 38. I'm a career changer. I went into the program already with the knowledge of health at every size and intuitive eating, knowing that I wasn't going to do this work and that I was really a rebel dietitian to be. Um, And so it was like, put your head down, do your work. um, You know, try to have as many like projects that help people understand the problems of this wheat centric model um, without burnout, which is pretty hard to do when you're in a graduate degree of this sort of type of material, which is just really science dense. Um, but, but yeah, I got, it. you know, it flies by, I got through it and I, I'm just reminded that every year all these schools churn out all these dietitians that are um, promoting weight loss as a, um, a health behavior when it's not. No. And again, there, there's such, there's such a disconnect of what's happening in the world for the better of, of the people. And one of the things you and I were talking about before this is that FD, the FDA, when they're testing drugs for people, they don't take into consideration people that are fat and that it will not have the same efficacy. So we're putting people in a medical situation that we then blame them for, but the medication is not even effective for them. So do you have anything you want to say about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, when I think about evidence-based medicine or evidence-based nutrition and dietetics, I take it with a grain of salt because it often doesn't include body diversity, uh, you know, race diversity. It just, it's very limiting. Sometimes it's only um, thin white men in a study. And then we use that as like the benchmark to everything else. And it's just not um, effective. So I really try to lean on as much new evidence as we can find and anecdotal evidence and, and trying to have more space to go outside of that box. Because when you're working with people who aren't fitting in like what's textbook, what, what do you do with that? You have to do the best you can and show up. If I know that um, vitamins, like the upper limits aren't tested on larger bodies I think about sort of uh, harm reduction, like fat-soluble vitamins are, can become toxic and water-soluble vitamins aren't toxic, but they, you can make you nauseated and you'll excrete more of them. And 
it will compete for like absorption in the body. But anyway, I digress. Those things maybe I find like, oh, okay, we might need some more vitamin C. I don't know exactly about the vitamin D. I'm still exploring what the research is. I'm following fat studies. Um, we're playing with and talking to doctors. Hey, like I'm opening up those conversations where they aren't being had. Hey doc, I see this level is, you know, not, not meeting the standard. What do we think we could do here? And like, let's collaborate on these considerations. How are the doctors responding to this, these questions? <laughs> yeah. You know, most doctors have so many patients and so little time to talk that um, it's really limited. But the ones that I work with for eating disorders um, who specialize understand about like that multidisciplinary team. Um, and so when I bring up with like sort of the the lack of evidence of, of this nature, um, the ones that are working with eating disorders generally will listen to me, but they, you know, they, they sort of lean into me. Um, can they, they sort of name their considerations of what is harmful so we can prevent those measures. But it's really like based on sort of, uh, anecdotal experiences one by one, because we don't have the evidence. Not only that, it's bigger than that. You're, it's like you're trying to swim upstream. You and I were talking earlier about the fact, and, and I was astounded when I heard this, that 48 out of the 50 states can actually deny somebody in a larger body of housing, of employment, of lodging at a hotel, at a ta- for a table at a restaurant. This is coming from every direction. It's blatant discrimination, you know? Um, And what do you do with that? I mean, you push against the grain upstream as much as you can to find spaces that are safe for people who live in a world that are are told that their body is bad or wrong and othered. They literally can't fit in. And we were talking earlier about, um, and I've talked about this publicly before, like I have clients who have who are in larger bodies who every day have to make exhausting decisions of whether or not they're like, if it's worth it to leave the house, am I going to fit into the chairs at the restaurant? Should I go there ahead of time to check it out? Should I accept this invitation? Um, is this person going to, that I'm meeting, going to like point out my body in a, in a negative way that's going to be harmful to my mental health and in turn my physical health, you know, um, what shoes am I wearing? Do I have clothes that fit? Um, can I buy clothes on the racks? Um, or is, is it not available in my size? It's, and, and these are things that I will say for myself, and, and I hope this does not sound entitled, or I guess it is privileged. I, I don't think about that. Absolutely. So I, I do want to say that, like, it is, it is my privilege that those questions don't enter my mind when I'm starting my day. I have both, you know, marginalizations and privileges. I'm in a larger body in that I can't typically find clothing on the racks in a store, but um, I, you know, typically fit in a chair and, you know, like I'm on that cusp of things where, yeah, I sort of, I feel it, but I'm not completely shut out. And it's, um, it's a scary place to be when you know that like the body science, the weight science that we don't really have control over our bodies. And if you are 
predisposed to being in a larger body or you've weight cycled, whatever the reason is, or maybe you have a hormone deficiency, whatever it might be, if you end up in a space that's large enough that you're discriminated, it's it's hard to have a lot of hope for recovery, you know? How would you work with a client who walks into your office and says, Chelsea, I want you to teach me how to lose weight. You're the dietitian. How, what, like, how do you, and given the fact that there is incredible discrimination against people, so you can't fault somebody for wanting to, to change that. I mean, unfortunately, it'd be better if we changed society, but until then, I imagine people are going to say to you, how do I lose weight? What do you, what do you say to that? Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting question because part of me ideally wants to only really just talk to people who are ready to not focus on uh, weight loss. However, um, I don't know if we're, you know, I'm thinking about sort of the different types of clients that I have. If you're in recovering from an eating disorder, like all of that landscape is open for discussion. And so I sort of invite that with compassion and curiosity um, we can talk about it. I can talk about how I am a weight inclusive um, healthcare clinician, and I can show you the weight science of the harms of intentional weight loss, and that we actually don't, we are not able to sustain weight loss for more than two to five years for 95% of the population, as, as you know, these stats, um, which is, you know, something that people intellectually know, but still are like chasing that dream of fitting in or feeling like if they shift their body size, that they'll be accepted and loved. Um, so, so yeah, I usually say, Hey, I work in, in a weight inclusive capacity. This is what this means and why, um, I am however, open to like talking about why you want to lose weight and like what's coming up for you around that. And like, we can, we can look at it and how does that sound? And would you like to give this a chance? Um, most people want to. Just so I have clarity, most people want to give it a chance to try to not lose weight or most people want to walk in and want to lose it. I just, for some reason, I just wanted to make sure I had that clear. Um, most people want to have these conversations of not pursuing weight loss, even though they, in the back of their minds, want want to be smaller or have an urge to pursue weight loss. Um, what we get to is that this isn't really their internalized value system. It's societal. Um, or, you know, familial, medical, first familial, then medical in terms of weight stigma. Um, and then coming, you know, individually to like what their value system is and how can we pursue health behaviors around body image healing and nutrition intake that's not related to intentional weight loss. I would imagine people often are walking in with a lot of armor around them. And when they hear this is not about weight loss. I'm wondering if that starts to like pull away because it's it they've never been told that before. They've always been told they were wrong. You need to lose weight. This is your fault. You can control this. You do have control over your body. All these things. And to sit somewhere and have someone sit across from you and say, nope, that's not what this is about must be, again, going back to liberation, must be liberating. Yeah, I think that the people who see uh, what I'm about online and are interested in talking with me and working with me 
are ready to make that jump because maybe they've like hit that wall with intentional weight loss, weight cycling from diet, dieting, chronic dieting. Um, and then of course, like folks with eating disorders, I think really appreciate the lived experience in the room that I have a larger body. I don't, I'm not recovered from an eating disorder, but I, I did chronically diet like my whole, I don't know, formative years until my early to mid thirties. And so I can relate to a lot of the trauma that is, um, in restriction and, um, how we relate to healing those, those parts of ourselves around food and body. And so I, it's really an honor to hold the space for anyone who's willing to be vulnerable with me. I really, I really am grateful. I, I can, I can imagine. I'm, I'm imagining when you said, um, forgive me if I'm getting this incorrectly, when you said something about trauma from restricting, I'm thinking about trauma from all the messages that have been internalized. Mm -hmm. That too. Yes. Body trauma. You also said something about your online and everyone knows I'm not technological. So I don't know. Did you say online presence or whatnot? Yeah. Let listeners know about the weekly meal support that you do online because that's amazing, Chelsea. Thank you, Karen. Um, so basically in the beginning of this pandemic, there was a group of Hayes practitioners who were coming together to offer offer meal support uh, for eating disorder recovery, chronic dieters, and that sort of human connection because they didn't have access to their therapists, their dietitians, their friends, their family, their school, their jobs in the way that they were really longing for. And so uh, I joined this group on an Instagram page that's now down. There was just, I think, a lot of burnout over now. It's, we're going on a year two of this pandemic. So a lot of practitioners sort of were on burnout. So they closed the page. But a lot of folks are still on their personal page offering meal support in different frequencies. And so since uh, I started, which was over a year ago, I can't even remember exactly, but I've been going and offering every week um, on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for about 45 minutes to an hour meal support where I have a guest. And I really try to focus usually mostly on, not all the time, but most of the time on marginalized voices. So um, fat folks, trans folks, BIPOC folks, um, yeah, anyone who really doesn't have that centered voice. Um, and uh, a lot of healthcare workers, just because those are my colleagues, but really anyone who wants to have a chat and nosh with me, it's super casual. And the community is beautiful. They remember each other's doctor's appointments and wish each other a happy holiday. And how are you doing since you hurt your foot? And, how, you know, how's your dog? And it's just, it's so beautiful to see, to witness um, to get to know all these folks. And, you know, I know there's a lot of harm in, uh, that we've seen statistically through on Instagram and Facebook in the media talking about like a lot of comparison and, and folks sort of, um, with eating disorders, um, leaning into some harmful imagery and content. And so like that all is part of the landscape. However, this bubble of space is truly, um, a safe haven for folks who are healing their food and body journey. Um, and yeah, I just feel really grateful for technology because it is being used for good in some ways. And, um, it may not be like the major portion of the population similar to dietetics, but there is like 
you know, a shift against the grain for like social justice here in this in this population. Just so people understand, because I do think this is really invaluable. So do do the um my goodness, what's group participants? Oh my goodness, everyone. I couldn't think of the name the word group participants. Words are hard. <laughs> oh, let's go, what's going on here? Do they show up? through this forum and they also are eating with you? Do they get any feedback if they're struggling? Like, can you say a little bit more? Because it, like I said, it is an invaluable group and and I'd love to really get it out there. Yeah. So this is a free resource for folks, for anyone. You don't have to have an eating disorder, but it is focused on meal support. And for those out there who don't know what meal support is, um, it's really a space of support to help you nourish yourself or maybe sit with the discomfort um, of satiation after you eat or maybe get started on decisions on cooking. I, I mean, there are people in the group. So, well, before I get into the details of that, just, yeah, people that are participating um, chat in the chat box and I try to answer questions with my special guest. Um, you know, it's not a replacement for medical care, but it's a sort of extended support system and human connection. So someone might say, Hey, like, I just don't know what to eat today. And like, I don't know what to do. Does anyone have any ideas? And like someone in the group might be like, can you make some eggs? And I might be like, Hey, like, do you have any bread? Make some toast. And like, someone will be like, okay, I'm going to make it and like start listening. And then someone else might be like, I just finished my meal or like, it's really uncomfortable to sit with this. Like anybody have any recommendations? And sometimes that might get lifted, kicked up to myself and the other person talking, or it might be answered like by the participants. It's sort of a collaboration in that space. And I am monitoring it. So like, if anyone is going to say something sort of harmful, I'm going to like knock them out. But generally speaking, most people are really respectful of each other and supportive and um, have been coming for weeks and months and over a year. I've seen people and, and all over the world, Malaysia, California, um, the UK, I mean, people are tuning in um, and going, oh, like, I really wish I was in New York City having a bagel with you right now, but like, this is what I'm eating. So yeah, it's, um, it's a support system. It's a free resource for, for healing around nourishment. And, you know, everyone is coming at it with a, a different struggle. And so you witness that, that support. Peer support is really beautiful to witness when you're a group leader and you see everybody working, you know, towards each other and giving feedback and being vulnerable. It is a really, really powerful experience. I always feel really honored when I used to run groups to be able to to watch it happen. And again, this goes back to the beginning of the of our conversation, which is you didn't have that in graduate school. And, and it just, it feels very, um, isolating, rigid, cold. And, and that's the antithesis of what you want a community to be like. Yeah. I have like two things just surfaced in my mind. One is, so I, my program had two different grades of like 25 to 30 people in them in a social work building. So everyone else there was undergrad and graduate social workers to be. And you saw body diversity, you saw just like, uh, like different kinds of food behaviors. And in dietetics, it was like, very like, sort of the rigidity was there. Like people came with their lunch packed and their bell peppers sliced and like, 
There's nothing wrong with bell peppers. I'm a fan. But just sort of like the limitations of like diet culture in medicine and in dietetics. Um, There's a pizza shop next, like right off of the building. And I knew if I went to grab a slice between classes, I would never see a single dietetic student in my two years. And I never did. If I would sometimes get a slice, I never saw one. And, you know, that's not to say that these folks don't eat pizza, but like, it's just a space where we're supposed to like operate in this perfectionistic way, this idyllic, like evidence-based, like eat your fruits and vegetables and like look a certain way. And it's just like, health is so much more nuanced than that. And it's just, it's sad to see that limitation. Um, I'm grateful that I'm a career changer with perspective. And so it was lonely, but I, you know, I did it. I like, I ate my pizza. I went back to class and then fast forward about a year out. I'm in my rotations. It's similar to like a residency for, for medical students. Um, I attend this event. It's like the greater New York dietetics association and this wonderful health at every size clinician got on stage in thin blonde white woman talking about these principles and she had a Q&A at the end and I'm in an auditorium and I grabbed the mic and I said hi your talk was wonderful I'm wondering do you know any fat dietitians because I've never met one and I'm fat and I'm going to be a dietitian um and she said she said no and I just felt so so sad and at the end of the event um I was walking out to like outside of the auditorium and Kimmy Singh and Jen Jackson, who are both fat dietitians, like came with open arms and hugged me. And I, I just, I teared up and I'm, I'm so grateful for both of them for, um, yeah, just coming to me to support me to say, Hey, like, you're not alone doing this work. Um, we're here. We see you. First of all, that's a, that's a powerful visual of you standing up there and the description of the woman giving the presentation and then her just leaning into the microphone and saying, no, when you said, do you know of any fat dietitians? Like, that's really, really powerful, Chelsea. And, you know, it's interesting when you were talking about um, what dietitians, and by the way, this is in no means saying anything negative about any discipline, but like how you were like, the way they the eating was very rigid. That concept is all over because people assume if you're going to a dietitian, it is for weight loss. And I was going, I have a lot of friends who are dietitians and clinicians and whatnot. And I was going to a party with somebody once and I said that this friend of mine is a dietitian. And they were like, oh, is it just going to be like carrots and hummus? And I was like, dude, what kind of dietitians do you work with? Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, the, it is the stereotype of everyone. And, and that's really unfortunate because food is beautiful and fun and joining and rich and salty and sweet. And so I'm sorry, you look like you were going to say something. Just like sort of rifting on what you're saying, like thinking about my close friends that I am in touch with from grad school, um, that are in smaller bodies. Like we eat lots of wonderful food that has a variety. It's just like when you're at school in this very sort of um, sterile space, like it's just mirroring like medicine because, you know, dietitian, like the education system's trying to like 
be as close to teaching doctors. Like we want to just be in this weight centric model, be respected because dietitians haven't historically been respected. And I think that the education system has tried to lift them with respect by being more similar to doctors. And then it's unfortunate because we know that this model is actually causing more harm to people's health than not. So it's frustrating to see, but I, I was just thinking about how my body is like, it's not my business card. You know, I'm, I'm not utilizing it as my business card and and it shouldn't be yours either. That's really uh, a thought that I sort of hold every day. How do you help clients that have been so conditioned to believe that there's good foods and bad foods and I must, Mm -hmm. you know, it's my fault because I'm eating these foods and, you know, that I'm, since you're young, we're told this. How do you help with someone to unpack years and years and years of internalizing this message that is everywhere? Oh, I love unpacking that stuff, especially with science, because, you know, nutrition is biochemistry and there's so many reactions going on in the body. And so can we debunk some of them? Um, Even with our limited evidence-based work, like I can use the system to lift people up. And so, you know, the word processed and what that means and, you know, like sliced apples are processed when you buy a sliced apples in a bag that is processed food. So, you know, trying to unpack terminology, I think language is so important and what does it mean? So, um, a lot of like education and then also kind of like, Hey, and this is intense and not for everyone, but like, no matter what we do we're going to die. And I think it's important to like respect that there's morbidity and mortality. And is the goal to have no morbidity in your whole life? Like I'm a healthcare practitioner. I want to help you embrace health from mind body perspective and heal, um, mostly eating disorder recovery work. And I recognize that there are certain types of morbidity, like conditions that we have to live with statistically. we, We, it's our genetics. Um, and that's not a failure that we can like thrive in our life. And so I think, you know, it's sort of like, can we come back to align to our value system? Um, can we unpack and re-educate ourselves and slow down and really like parse it to parse it out and then put it back together? Like what, what makes me tick and feel most alive and how can I move forward? It's, it's, it's incredible. I don't mean to like just sort of like shift, but can you explain what body neutrality means? There's so many words out there, body love, body positivity, body neutrality, but I think that people are confused and feel that there's, there has to be one way or so. Can you, can you explain it a little bit? Yeah, I'd love to. So, um, you know, I, I work with a lot of folks in that are have identified as transgender and non-binary. And so I use the term body neutrality a lot in my work because, uh, folks with, uh, that are non-binary and trans typically experience body dysphoria, which is not really connecting to the assigned sex that you're born. And so telling someone to love their body when their body is not aligned with how their body and brain are not connecting, um, is not honoring, like meeting them where they are. 
And so um, a way to sort of combat at combat it is to go, hey, like we don't have to love our bodies to take care of them. I can brush my teeth. I don't have to like love my smile to, to brush my teeth just to, like outside of the scope of work, just thinking about self-care. So yeah, body neutrality is taking care of your body without morality. Um, I think it's very similar to body respect. Um, it's to me, like they're pretty synonymous in that, in that you're focusing on your self-care. Um, it's not about loving your body. It's not about um, liking how you look. It's not about aesthetics. It's about, it's about feeling um, like you're taking care of yourself. Does my bra fit? Does my uh, binder fit? Am I wearing one that's too tight for me as I'm going through gender affirming care? Um, Cause like, that's, you know, maybe not body neutrality or body respect. Maybe that's trying to force yourself to fit into something that's, that's harming your, your mental well being. So yeah, I hope that answers a little bit of your question there. It does. And I also feel that it makes people feel, especially in the eating disorder recovery world, that unless they love their body, they have failed at the recovery process and they're still in the recovery process. And I, I think that that's a, that's a really, um, it's, it's unfortunate that that message is out there because just like you said, and it's, it's not even about loving your body. I like, I like honor this body that has me walk to the kitchen to get my coffee in the morning and wrap my arms around my partner and take a shower. Like it's, it's not just about, like you said, the aesthetics and, and, and it stays there when people are still going to this, I have to love my body in order to feel recovered or feel healed. And I, I think that's an unfair thing. It's, it's a setup. It is a total setup and so much confusion because body image doesn't really have to do with what we look like. It has to do with how we perceive ourselves in the world. Um, it's so complex and it's a constant, um, I don't know, variable that we have to sort of lean into and show up with curiosity every day because bodies are, are changing. Our view of things are changing. Our, you know, how much energy we have, how much we've slept, our stress levels change the perception of our body image. And when you're healing from an eating disorder, it's like we have to incorporate all of that every every day as much as we we can tolerate it. That window of tolerance is really the work. That's exactly it. The window of tolerance. Have you noticed, and I know we talked about this a, a few minutes ago about the pandemic, but have you noticed things shifting during the pandemic? for you or, or for your clients or are you seeing different things present ever since the pandemic? Because yeah, we are on year two, which is frightening to say. My, my practice is full and eating disorders are, you know, very much, you know, kicking up as you I'm sure have seen statistically, you know, when, when people are under stress, uh, we, we lean into maladaptive behaviors and if that's your genetic predisposition, then eating disorders are kind of kick up. And that's a, a big portion of the population. So yes, I'm seeing it. Um, and, you know, navigating this whole like telehealth thing has been a really interesting uh, dynamic in that we get to go into the kitchen together and, and have cooking lessons or 
um, eating the food that's like at, at your dining table. We, you have access to that. Your pet is in the room with me. Um, I get to see your space. You get to see me in a space. It's just, um, you know, obviously it's not the same thing as like being in a room with somebody. There's nuance that's missed there, but we make up for it in accessibility to um, some elements of self-care that maybe we didn't have before. So I'm grateful for those. Another piece of technology that I'm grateful for. Yeah. I also think there's some level, a different level of comfort when somebody is doing it from their home that allows them to actually be more vulnerable. And I couldn't agree more. (laughs) Yeah. And so, and that's, that's what I've noticed. Um, And I love seeing the pets crawling in. Like I, I love learning about people from all different aspects and you can Mm -hmm. tell a lot. And, you know, as you know, I, I do this recording in my closet so you can see what my life is like by by my closet and you it's just it's very very interesting i i find it i i i consider it as a gift that people are allowing me in because they could put up a uh you know like a backdrop or whatever you know so i just i don't know I, that was a ramble but yeah no it gave me chills i love i love that vulnerability i'm here for it in my work and i'm honored when people show up um as vulnerable as they are and do the work with me yeah yeah Chelsea, it it has been so wonderful talking with you. We're going to have to start winding down. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you'd like to talk about? Is there anything else you want to share? I'm working on uh, a weight-inclusive toolkit with practitioners uh, that that has been accepted into the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics in two years' time going to be in every nutrition program in the country as a pilot and if it does well it might go into you know nursing school and medical school so fingers crossed on that um pushing the needle for ending weight stigma as much as we can in our society chelsea that is incredible incredible work and um, I want to say thank you that you're doing it. And I, I can only imagine it is not a small feat what you are trying to accomplish right now, but it's got to also be really rewarding. Truly is. Um, a quote that I wanted to share, two quotes that I want to share, I wrote down that I didn't get to mention. And um, two folks out there for those who aren't following to follow their yeah, social media, their books, their offerings. So Aubrey Gordon, who many of you may know, is a fat woman, fat uh, gay woman who has a podcast called Maintenance Phase, also has a book called What We Don't Talk About When We Talk About Fat, which really unpacks a lot of weight stigma. And here's a quote from the book. She says, we can build a world that doesn't assume fat people are failed thin people or that thin people are categorically healthy and virtuous. Love that. That's fantastic. And did you say you had another quote as well? Laura Burns, who is a fat yoga teacher in Texas, has a new yoga book out. Um, She has this awesome quote. She says, I see all these posts saying, you don't have to be beautiful. And all I can think is, you don't have to be beautiful to be worthy. Chelsea. I, I, I love that you you ended with those two quotes. And I, I just, again, I want to thank you for being part of the show. 
It's my pleasure, Karen. Thank you for having me. All right, everyone. That does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Recovery Bites. Be sure to visit recoverybitespodcast.com to join the conversation, access show notes, listen to past episodes, and more. You can also find us by searching for Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and major podcast streaming players. For weekly episode releases, you can follow us at at Recovery Bites Pod on Instagram. If you're interested in becoming a guest on the show or to submit a guest request, please visit KarenLewisEDC.com forward slash podcast sign up to begin the process. I'd also like to send out a heartfelt thank you to my producer, Jen Galvin. It is unbelievable the magic she does behind the scenes. All right, everyone. See you next week for another Recovery Bite. Thanks for listening.